Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Philip Britton of Crux Informatics. Rather than being an alternative data buyer or provider, Crux is a utility designed to serve the wider data market. Billing itself as the DHL of data, Crux provides a pipeline which streamlines the complicated and unwieldy process of transporting data from the provider to the consumer. Philip's own background in the upper echelons of Thomson Reuters and Bloomberg showed him the problems that he is now dedicated to solving. I started by asking him how he came up with the idea for Crux. Sure, happy to. Yes, I've, and you know, thanks again, Mark, for for having me, and appreciate everybody listening in. Um, you know, I've spent over over thirty years over the course of my career, uh, almost entirely in uh, financial technology. So I and and always at vendors. So Crux is my fourth startup, fintech oriented. Plus, wow. I I ran a business at Bloomberg for a number of years, a foreign exchange and economics. Uh, businesses. I headed up Google Finance for a while, and then uh, I was the chief technology officer and head of platform for Thomson Reuters prior to the Refinitiv spinoff. So I've got a, a real mix of you know startup and large company experience, but all in core financial technology. Um, and so I've been in the business of selling building and selling data products, analytics, electronic trading workflow capabilities for my whole career at companies large and small. And during that time, I saw, you know, real a real issue. You know, and it first off, you know, let's, you know, let's accept that data is the foundation of financial services. Um, I believe that all financial services companies fundamentally are in the business of taking in data about markets, about the world in various ways, doing analysis on that data, and arriving ideally at some unique and valuable insight. And firms differ really only in how they monetize that insight. Um, You know, it may be placing a trade, it may be cutting a risk position, it may be writing a research report, it may be pitching a client on an M&A target, uh, maybe underwriting an insurance policy, it may be creating a, a derived data product and selling that. You know, there's lots of ways uh, that firms participate in the, in the markets as vendors, as buy side, as sell side, as research, et cetera. But fundamentally, it's about taking in information, doing analysis, arriving an insight and then having different ways to um, bet on that insight, so to speak, in the, in the market. To use a, uh, a very oft-repeated metaphor, um, oil, uh, data is the new oil. Um, and in that, in that case, then, and similar to oil, you know, it, it, the oil's the same. It's getting from one side to the other, it's, but there's many different uses. Once it arrives, it's mined out of the ground, then it arrives. And so there's, it's the, there's a variety of, of, of ways that value can be extracted from it. That, that's absolutely right. And we can think of data very much as a commodity like oil. And the same, the same oil may end up as gasoline, as jet fuel, as, you know, lighter fluid, um, as asphalt. Uh, so, you know, and the same is true of data. Um, data may be refined in different ways and have uh, serve a number of different use cases for different kinds of firms. And there's a whole ecosystem that has grown up around, obviously, uh, oil, to use your analogy, but uh, a whole ecosystem is growing up around data as well. Thank you very much for joining on my joining me on my metaphor. <laughs> no, absolutely, it's it's a good metaphor. It's a it's a very it's a very reason, reasonable one. Okay, so so just so um, to summarize, you had been in um, kind of in the data pipeline business, you could say, working for Thomson Reuters and, and, and Bloomberg for, for, for many years and kind of reached the top of, of, that, of that area. Um, and so you are very familiar with 
that business, who's in it, how it works. And you were this kind of idea, this 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 kind of problem was beginning to to tickle at you that there was a there was an issue which would needed to be solved and, and hadn't been solved by the market. Um, and so that so that so so let's go from there. Absolutely. You you put your finger right on it. So at at these vendors, I bought data to to use and I and I sold data. And you know, and I saw I might buy a, a third party feed uh, of data from somebody and be waiting around for six, nine, twelve months, literally, to get that data into production. It's just very hard to to do the to do the wire up, and before I could use that in an analytic or repackage it uh, for sale or or drive some other derived data product. Uh, and then, likewise, on the other side of things, um, when we sold data to a client. We'd be waiting around for them for three, six, nine, twelve months to wire up and actually make use of the data. And generally, you can't charge the data as a general as a data vendor until the data is flowing. So you're a little bit in the hands of the client, and the client, you know, you can go to the client and say, "Oh, hey, glad you want our data. Here's our spec. Wire up to our API." And the client would be like, "Oh, yeah, I love your data. I'm going to get around to it. I've just got a lot of other priorities. I'm kind of backed up. I've got 100 data sets on board. Just mm. just bear with us." And so I saw this um phenomenon as both a consumer and a supplier of data to the market. And so I did a little research and I found out that this upfront part of you know doing the programming, well, let's call the the data engineering piece of the cycle, where you have to program against an API or an FTP site or a loader program or a you know more recently maybe a, an S3 bucket drop or whatever it is. Like different vendors have different ways of making their data available to their clients, and they're all different. And even if they all use API, all those APIs would be all different. There are notoriously few standards in the industry. There are some, but few of them. And there are a bunch of competing standards, which makes things difficult and just kind of messy. Sorry to sorry to jump in, Philip. Is this specifically, would you say this is specifically an alternative data problem? No, no, this is a data problem. I mean, the reason I ask is that one definition, there are many definitions of alternative data, but one definition of alternative data is anything that's not on Bloomberg. And so, <laughs> so what you're, what you're, so when you're, so Bloomberg is kind of doing it for themselves, I, I, I imagine a little bit. And is this not a problem of when you get off piste a little bit, when you get off that and you're getting into the less traditional forms, then you have to start worrying about exactly how you're going to access your data. No. So there are aspects of what you're saying that are that are correct, and uh, but there are but it's it's a it's bigger than that. And so let me say so. First off, I'm sure Bloomberg would say, "Wait a minute, we carry alternative data as well," and and <laughs> they do, and they're starting to, and the big aggregators are. But let me let me frame it a little bit. Um, the so first off. You know, we see demand for crux across all of data, and we are ourselves data agnostic. So we carry plenty of alternative data, but we also carry all the foundational data. And the way the way I define traditional versus alternative data is traditional data is really is prices um, and uh, fundamentals, estimates, uh, economic data. So your traditional financial data that either has to do with with markets or the prices and volumes of, of trades, et, et cetera, um, macroeconomic data behind it, and particularly for equities and to some extent in fixed income, of course, company information, fundamentals, estimates, et cetera. Um, beyond, and so really everything beyond that is quote unquote alternative data, it's, or we might call non-financial data that is financially relevant. So foot traffic data, satellite imagery data, weather data, you know, all, all kinds of things, uh, various kinds of supply chain transactions, exactly. Credit card receipts, which maybe they're financial, but they're, they're retail. And so the, the whole point is that they, they are a step away from how a company is actually doing. And ideally, they're, they are predictors of how a particular, ultimately how a stock or a bond or a commodity um, is, going to, is going to perform in, in the future. And that's why there's so much interest in them. Now, the, the fact, folks have always had to wire up to lots of sources of data. 
Um, and as much as the big aggregators, you know, have huge pieces of market share, and there's no denying that, um, they don't have a hundred. They do not supply. They never have supplied a hundred percent of what of what a client needs. A client has always needed to go around and wire up to a bunch of different competing sources of data or uh, complementary sources of data. Let's say. I'm intrigued by this. Just just to just to pause you. I'm intrigued by that. I mean, so. Alternative data, some would say, is really a kind of last five years game. So in a way, alternative data has has coincided with the creation of crux, maybe by happy circumstance, or possibly because you probably because you can see the future. But um, the but let's I mean going back to your to your to your kind of when you were working at these Bloomberg and these Thomson Reuters, what was an investor? What alternative source were they having to use beyond Bloomberg back in two thousand five, say, or two thousand and ten? Um. Well, you're you're right. the The rise of alternative data, and certainly the consciousness of alternative data as a as a thing that has a name, alternative data is is a quite a recent is quite a recent phenomenon. I think firms, um, most firms, were not really looking uh, very far afield. You know, I'd say supply chain data in the commodity space was early on, and I built. Uh, I built capabilities of tracking, you know, oil tankers, for instance, ten years ago, um, when uh, you know, so people could predict supply uh, uh, of oil by seeing, okay, where are the ships? When are they going to load? Let's figure out how much, you know, is going to arrive here. There's going to be a surge of supply as this oil uh, arrives. This hasn't arrived. This ship is delayed. That's going to affect mm. prices. So that's a form of, of alternative data. And of course, weather data for ag, agricultural commodities, as well as for energy commodities, um, have been around for a while. So I think the commodity space has been perhaps a little bit more and just by the nature of the market, alternative focused. It takes me back to takes me back to Trading Places, that classic eighties movie where it's the the, <laughs> yes. the the frozen orange juice crop on the back of the weather report. So no, absolutely, I yeah. completely. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of led the way. I think in let's say the company space, equities and, and fixed income, um, alternative data has been around, but it's been a little bit more like a secret thing that particularly hedge funds were going and getting this data. And it was very, there was a lot of, there was a period of time when it was very exclusively provided. A hedge fund would go and buy exclusive access to the data. It wasn't, the data itself wasn't highly commoditized or packaged yet. Um, and so there was a lot of hunting around and, and trying to get access to, to data no one else had access to. So obviously, you know, can be a valuable strategy if it gives you uh, gives you a march on the on uh, what's going to happen. Uh, but the alternative data space, of course, has developed and matured and become more productized. And, and, and these capabilities or these, these various products, data products, have become more commoditized. And in terms of data ingestion, you know, one of the really interesting things we've seen is that, that the innovation in alternative data has not been by really too much by existing data companies. There's certainly been some, but so much of it is being done by individual startup companies. You know, this company has this data set and this other company has this other data set and this other company has this other data set. So what we've seen is this tremendous fragmentation of the mm. data supply base. I think that's one of the most interesting things about alternative data, you know, beyond the sort of the core thing of sort of opening everyone's minds to, oh, it's not just financial data. Like any data is potentially gives you a signal that you could build a model against, that you could trade against or, you know, value your, or, you know, evaluate your, your risk position or whatever it may be, um, or, you know, gain some insight into how the macroeconomic uh, environment's going to develop over the next year or say. Um, so I think people's minds are open like, wow, there's a lot, there's just a huge breadth of data. And, but also that the, the innovation is really distributed, extremely distributed. And, and I think that's maybe an underappreciated thing. Um, it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon. It didn't have to be that way. It could have been the large existing data providers that did all that did the innovation, but it's really come from the startup world and from, you know, what we see up close and personal at Crux is because of the nature of our business is that that fragmentation 
of the innovation means that customers of this data have to wire up to a lot more sources of data because each one sure. of these companies has their own API or their own way of getting the data to the customers. Now, it's not just being added to an existing you know, Bloomberg or Affinitive or S&P or FactSet feed. It's these are all, you know, going separately. Now, of course, the aggregators are are aggregating. That's that's their business. Some there are some acquisitions going on in the market uh, of some of these alternative data vendors, particularly hot ones. Um, I think the consolidation has not been quite as rapid as it could have been. That's a fascinating topic in itself. But so uh, to, to, to summarize, there is there has been we've seen a great deal of fragmentation in the in the market in terms of de- sources of data and the types of data you can get and lots of small com- over a thousand small alternative data providers. Um, right. Is their, their suggestion. So that's a that's a hell of a lot. And they're all got, uh, as you say, different ideas about the best way to to compile their data and you know and and provide it to the clients so by happy circumstance or by by perfect planning um you crux has arrived at the perfect time as well because just in a just in a in a little nutshell crux essentially is what we we are we call ourselves a, a data delivery operations and engineering firm and so you can think of us that the loose analogy we use is fedex of data or dhl of data maybe in in europe and um we just we get data from sources of data to folks who need that data and that's all we do. We do not sell data ourselves. We do not create data ourselves. We don't have a use case. We don't have analytics. We don't have terminals. We are transporting data. And if you're not in the data business, that may sound like, well, who needs that? What, what's the big deal? Well, it turns out that's it's a huge deal. And back to my earlier anecdotes about how long uh, I spent in my past jobs, both onboarding data for my use and selling data or providing it to clients how long that takes. The research that I did showed that that upfront work is about 80% of the total time energy that firms spend on using data is that upfront data engineering work, wiring up, downloading, checking, watching over, cleaning, validating, scrubbing, normalizing, storing, basic stuff. That's 80%. And only 20% of their total effort is left over for what, what we might generally call the data science piece of actually extracting value out of the data, doing research, powering an algo, feeding into a risk system, uh, getting some customer insight or economic insight, et cetera. Only 20% is actually differentiating valuable extraction uh, of that data. I remember just a little vignette. Um, I remember from my masters of big data that the description was, you know, um, you, you think you're training to be a data scientist, but in reality, being a data scientist, most of the time, you're actually a data janitor. You are just cleaning out the warehouse, making sure everything works, making sure the columns align. You know, actually, that's the that's the truth in data science is that a huge amount of it is, is just doing the grunt work to make sure that everything lines up and is clean. That is absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. And frankly, it's interesting because there's all these costs to the to the whole thing. There's there's obviously time, as I talked about. There's money. You got to pay people, and and you got to you know, it just costs to far more than people realize unless they're actually doing this job to onboard this data. There's there's a risk cost to it, in the sense that this work, this data engineering upfront work has a terrible asymmetrical risk profile, meaning if you get it wrong, if you make a mistake in how you handle the data, it is potentially catastrophic. It could cause a bad trade. It could cause you to misunderstand your risk position. It could cause all kinds of terrible things to happen um, or put you out of put you out of commission at a time of high market volatility. That's if you get it wrong. If you get it perfectly right, if you do everything absolutely pristine, perfect, you're even. Congratulations. You got the data. Good for you. Like that's that's it. That's the best you can do. So there's limited upside or sort of fixed upside and and you know and and unlimited downside. It's like selling an option. 
um, you know, you can collect the premium, but uh, you got unlimited downside. And so that's a terror. That's a cost aspect to it that people often overlook. And then it was actually a customer back to your point who said, you know, I've got an HR issue. It's not just a time and money issue. I've got an HR issue. I hired all these data scientists and they're spending their time looking at file specs and arguing with vendors about FTP credentials and they're not happy because people underestimate this part of the work and they and they hire a bunch of, you know, extremely talented data scientists and then they the data scientists find themselves doing the data janitorial work as you say and it's frustrating and it can become literally an HR issue uh, for these firms to to get folks to do this. And that's and that for all those reasons, you know, we created Crux. Like, well, firms shouldn't do this. It's not differentiated. You've got hundreds or thousands of firms doing the exact same work, the exact same work to wire up to a source of data, you know, program against the API or the FTP site or whatever, whatever the output from the vendor is, download a thousand identical copies of data, let's say, check that data a thousand times to make sure nothing went wrong because you, you have to bring the data, every update of the data. So if it's daily, you know, once a day or if it's hourly every hour, et cetera, however, whatever the speed of update is of the data, um, you have to check it because stuff goes wrong. It's a machine in motion. Things break. Schemas change accidentally. You get gobbledygook. You missing rows. You get suddenly, you know, accidentally date formats change, and all these things can just break your downstream systems. So you have to bring the data in. You have to stage it. You have to check it, and then you got to have a team of data operators watching the checks and responding to them. If something, you know, says, "Whoops, it looks broken" or even suspicious. You have to take a look, probably call the vendor, say, hey, there's an extra column in this table today. Did you really mean to put that in? What are we supposed to do with it? Or there's only half as many rows today. Is that what is that real or what's what's going on with that? So you have to do all of that. And you've got a thousand firms checking a thousand identical copies of data a thousand times independently of each other, all looking at the same results a thousand times independently, all calling the vendor a thousand times to say, hey, there's an extra column today. So just tremendous waste and duplication. I mean, astonishing. You know, if you take a step back from the point of view of any company, it's like, well, I just got to do this work to get the data. So they, they kind of narrowly look at their at themselves and that, you know, makes sense. But if you take a step back and look at the industry, it makes no sense at all. It really makes no sense. It's very tempting. I find it I find it endlessly tempting with this with this case to um to just keep coming up with metaphors as to, as to what exactly you do. I'm just, I don't know if you I, have the same problem. Uh, well, but, I um, generally love a good metaphor, so yeah. But so but it reminds me. I mean, so I was just trying to think. It reminds me of a of a kind of, you know, those um adapters when you go to a different country one of those universal adapters that you buy at an airport and then you can plug it in into one into a european socket and then it'll come out american but that so there's that nice conversion and that and but obviously much smarter than that because it's um because you're cleaning the data and dealing with stuff on the inside and and you're not just you haven't got that neat european plug where every plug is the same you've got a million plugs coming from 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 one side And also, presumably, you're giving it out in various options to the clients in the way that they want it. But just finally, the other problem with that metaphor is that it feels almost, I I like the pipeline metaphor as well. It feels like you're building, because it's going over long distances, it feels like you're building kind of smart pipelines between between com- com- companies as well, and and so you're they're back to the oil oil metaphor. You're mm-hmm. it, it, it's traveling, it's traveling over distances. So it's 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 hard to find the perfect metaphor. I'm finding the analogies you use there are exactly right. So we we operate as a kind of utility. You might call us a value added switchboard of data. So rather than everybody running around and wiring up to every source of data, and you've got this tangled mess of all these connections going from here to there. Um, we wire up once to every source of data. Uh, we download each update once. We check it once. We have a team of data operators working in shifts, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. If anything, if any you know red lights go off on our dashboards, say, whoops, schema change. Whoops, there's not enough data. Whoops, there's an empty file. Oh, it's late. This is a scheduled arrival and it didn't arrive on time. You know, buzzers go off and our team looks at it, tries to solve the problem, calls the vendor, says what what happened here. We do all that work once 
and we store the data. We, we scrub it. We standardize formats, uh, et cetera. Um, we, we add our, our metadata on top of the data. We don't change the, the vendor's data, but we add metadata that the client can use or not use if they, if they wish to, to help them along. Uh, and then you're exactly right. You know, it used to be the case that, well, FTP was a sort of standard. Everyone would just use FTP for getting uh, batch data to, you know, to their to their customers. Nowadays, almost nobody wants FTP. It's a pretty clunky technology. But what customers want is not a, one new thing. They want, you know, a dozen different new things. So we've built that side out as well, uh, to your point. So if the client wants an API, we have a you know modern, beautiful, RESTful API. They can wire up to that. They get all the data from all the different vendors through that one API. So it's very easy. They only have one thing to do, which is connect to the Crux API. And we do all the hard part of connecting to thousands of, of APIs on the on the downstream or on the upstream side, rather. Or uh, if they want to uh, have, they want to write Python. We have a Python client that wraps the API and just write Python code against the data. If they're using a cloud-based data warehouse, which is a very rapidly accelerating trend we're seeing in the market now, so many firms are moving from their old owned and operated data centers to um, cloud-based data warehouses. So if you're using Snowflake or AWS, or, or Google Cloud, or Microsoft Azure, we're deeply integrated into all of those. So you could just give us your ID for your data warehouse, and whatever data sets you've contracted Crux to deliver for you, we just put that data in your data warehouse for you. So, you, so the client does nothing. They just tell us what data they want, and where do they want it, and we do the work. Now you're a data concierge service, like another metaphor. <laughs> okay, in in a way, yes, we 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 it, and we've used that term as well. Um, but it's, I think, it's more about we work. You know, in being in the middle, we're just trying to take the toil, the undifferentiated toil, off of everybody's backs and the risk that goes along with that toil, the cost, the time the brain damage, the HR risk, the operational risk. We just try to reduce that. And we meet the supplier where they are. So they don't have to wire up to us. They say, what, what have you got? You've got you've got an API. You've got an FTP site. Oh, you've got a loader program. We'll run that. We work with a vendor. We extract the data from them exactly as a customer would from them today. Then we download the data. We do all our you know, scrubbing and checking and watching over and the normalization, et cetera, and, and enriching with, with our operational metadata. And then we, and then on the other side, we meet the client where they are so that they don't have to come and meet us. We said, what do you want? You want an API? You want a cloud-based integration? You want to write, run SQL queries against the data because you don't want to take all of it into your own data warehouse. You just take slices. We can do that too. Um, so we have, and, and it's expanding. We're adding more cloud integrations, uh, more ways. We integrate with a variety of AI platforms. The other thing, you know, alongside or sort of in parallel with this incredible uh, sort of flowering of the uh, of the alternative data space and all these startups coming along is on the machine learning side, on the downstream side. There are all these really cool AI platforms that have popped up in the last five to 10 years to help clients make use of data, build models, do research, do you know pattern recognition on data. And so we're increasingly wiring up uh, with all those cool tools so that clients can just say, yeah, I want you know this fundamental data and this alternative data and these prices in this AI platform I use. And we're like, great, we'll do it. We work with the platform, we wire up, we get the data there. Okay, Mr. Client, you're all set, go ahead. Perfect. So uh, let's talk about clients. So you had the wonderful, um, well, I mean, the, the great compliment that um, Two Sigma um, bought into you very early and, and was a yeah. kind of launch launch client for you. So that's obviously one of the one of the biggest and most respected quantitative hedge funds um, yeah, they're, around. Yeah, they're terrific. Yeah. Um, so that was a nice, uh, nice confirmation for you. Um, who, who, who likes you? Who, who uses you the most? What, if, could you break down your clients by percentages? Who are you aiming for? That kind of thing. So really interesting. We, we've always thought early on that, that Crux, I, I wanted Crux to be broadly applicable. You know, this is a horizontal scale business. So you know, my thought is anyone who needs data in or anyone who needs data out should be able to make use of Crux. There's nothing we're doing, especially since we don't have a use case. We're not, we don't have a specific, 
analytic and we're not specializing in a particular kind of data. We're completely client driven. We're agnostic to the data. We don't. We have no financial interest in the data itself. We don't sell or resell the data. So whatever it is the client wants, that's what that's what we get. And whatever they're going to do with it, that's their business. We do not care what the client is going to do with the business. Same as FedEx does not care with whatever with whatever it is you're planning to do with whatever's inside the box. They certainly do not care. And so we're kind of that way. We care about our clients and we care that they're well served, but we don't need to know, don't want to know what it is they're going to do with the data. We're just going to get them the data in the form and in the delivery method that is easiest and best for them. So that means that, you know, we sort of organically go where client demand is and, uh, and, and there's nothing particularly germane to a particular client type in what we're doing we can serve everybody. So the long term was always that we would, we would serve all kinds of clients. Now we did have a segmentation strategy early on and, you know, like everybody thought about client type as our main segment segment dimension and we thought okay quantitative hedge funds large you know medium to large size quantitative hedge funds are going to be our early adopters they're very sophisticated they're hungry they need lots of data they, they're moving fast they they're rich they they're good customers with budgets and they're and and they just they get this problem they they get it so they'll be our early adopters well fine and we got two sigma uh, with that segmentation. Um, but frankly, beyond that, what we have found is our original thesis of we are very generally applicable has come to pass far more quickly than we expected. So we now have, obviously, hedge funds, CTAs, very hedge fund-like, large traditional asset managers, name brand asset managers. Uh, CTAs, when, or CTAs? CTAs, yep, I mentioned. Uh, what so what hedge, are CTAs? Oh, sorry. Commodity trading advisors. Okay. Okay. They're commodities focused, very hedge fund like, okay. um, but con- often considered a, a separate a separate um, category. So, large mm-hmm. traditional asset managers, one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world, banks, uh, obviously, um, a fund administrator uses us to bring data in and deliver data out, uh, and then those are all financial institutions that need data. Then there are, um, we have trade associations, exchanges uh, like Euronex. We have large data vendors like MSCI, small data vendors, and including a number of alternative data vendors who use us as a delivery mechanism. So they pay us to take the data out to their clients. Think of it as almost as an Amazon Prime. They pay the shipping and handling and use us, say, go wire up so-and-so. And the advantage to them is, again, they you know, they shorten their time to revenue. They kind of take the timeline away from the client. They don't have to wait around for the client to, to wire up to their API. They can also, you, you know, maybe they have an API today or they have an FTP site by simply using Crux. They can say to the client, oh, yeah, we have Snowflake integration. We have GCP integration. Oh, you want to write SQL queries? Not a problem. Oh, you, you want a RESTful API? You want Python? You want ODBC connectivity? No problem. Because we give them where that power strip or that multi adapter, they just get that for a monthly, uh, a low monthly SaaS fee. It's your typical, you know, build versus rent uh, thing that the whole SaaS world has has brought about. So it's a huge advantage. It's uh, so so. It sounds like on the on the on the consumption side, it sounds like it's kind of everyone who wants it, but particularly. And you've talked a lot about yeah. financial financial clients. Mm-hmm. Um, let, actually, just one more question on the consumption side. Are you seeing and are you interested in the the corporate consumer in terms of kind of a- accessing external data, which is getting a lot of conversation at the moment? Absolutely. So we haven't gone after that market yet. That's a very that's a very spread out market. So we, we've tried to be disciplined about what we do to make sure we don't get spread too thin. We are, you know, a smallish company and um, it's... We're kind of moving beyond startup at this point to to really operating firm, but it's it's early enough days that, and I believe in the discipline of focus. I firmly believe in the discipline of focus. So we're we're you know taking things in a very methodical way. Um, so we've gone broader in our customer types uh, more quickly than I expected, but that's just been because of demand. Customers mm. have 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 wanted that. 
Um, we, we do also have customers who are platforms. So we have some data management platforms and analytics platforms that need data for their offering to be valuable to clients. And so some of them also use us uh, just like a consumer really to bring data in into them as well. Okay. And so, and then on the, on the, what they're wanting side, uh, so the, what's going in the pipeline, Mm -hmm. are they, are they all alternative data providers? No, no, it's, it's very, again, we're agnostic to data. So whatever the client, whatever the the customer base wants. Um, And it's, and it's very spread out, um, I'll say. So we have, we have well over 130 signed partnerships with data providers who, who, um, deliver data via Crux to their clients today. We have over 15,000 individual data sets that are pumping through our platform um, out to uh, you know uh, that wide variety of clients I just mentioned. Um, and and among the over 130, maybe 135 um, as of this morning, I'm not sure. Um, it's you know it's all the big name brand data vendors. That, that you would know in aggregators that, that everyone knows and loves in financial space, plus a bunch of more niche niche ones, narrower but still financial, and then a you know growing pool of alternative data vendors. Um, we particularly have quite a bit of ESG data, mm. and that's really because um, we're customer driven and and there's just tremendous focus in the market right at the moment on on ESG. So that just means we've naturally ended up with you know, a large proportion of, of, of all ESG data sets are now going through Crux, not not by design on our point, but on our part, but just simply because that's the pattern of market demand right at, right at the moment. It could be other things uh, over time, but we have a huge variety of foot traffic data, you know, overhead imagery, analytics, sentiment data, news analysis, ESG, obviously, um, uh, weather weather data um i'm just trying to think off the top of my head really astonishing numbers uh of data sets and and signals there are a bunch of alternative data vendors that are you not not selling data about anything particular but who are applying their own machine learning models to a range of inputs and then producing some kind of interesting signal that's meant to be used in a certain way or in combination with other data so some of that signal data as well quant quant signal data we might call it uh, as well so and that grows and we add a couple of partners a week um I think I signed about four partnership agreements this morning uh, already um and we add data sets every day obviously we've got 15,000. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's just growing and the, and the, the fragmentation, as I say, or the better way of saying is the innovation that's taking place in the market is truly, is truly remarkable. So just recently we, um, just outside this call, uh, I, and, and a couple of other, um, people hosted a alternative data um conversation on clubhouse the new um, yeah. the, the new app um, yep. and one of the questions we were trying and it's going to be every wednesday by the way shameless plug okay. um, and uh, one of the questions we were struggling with was that alternative data has these huge uh forecasts in terms of um here we are in 2021 and it is the size of uh, whatever it's, it's kind of 1.7 billion or, or 2 billion or something like that. Yeah. Um, and there are these huge forecasts that in 10 years time, it will be 10 times the size or, or, or something like that. Huge yeah. growth is, is forecasted in, in that period. And one of the questions we were struggling with is um, how will that happen? Where is the growth going to be? How is it going to come about? This the reason I'm talking to you about this is it seems that this is um, thoroughly linked to your business model on the upside yes. because if you're the utility for this rapidly, hopefully expanding world, then um, then that's where you know that's where your growth will come from potentially as well as well as kind of tying up to all the traditional um, sources and, and consumers. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts about about how it will grow. Absolutely. And I think, so I agree with all of that. Um, If it will grow that much, I don't know. No, Mm. I don't think anyone knows. Those are prognostications uh, at this point. But um, 
I would say our relationship with the alternative data market is is entirely symbiotic. So yes, if the the demand for alternative data continues to grow at the at those predicted pace, then that's certainly good for our business. But we think we help bring that about as well. So it goes both ways, um, and our success can help the alternative data market grow more quickly for the following reasons. Firms are have been gated on, the, you know, so consuming firms, financial institutions, let's say, um, have been gated on their ability to consume data because it is hard. It is time consuming. It is, it is costly. Um, and it, you know, it takes their people and the you know, people and Firms routinely say they're backed up. They got a hundred data sets in queue. They're trying to work their way through, and it takes a long time. So, thanks to Crux, you know, given our ability to um, speed up or give clients scale ability to access efficiency, efficiency, allow them to access more data more quickly, less expensively, will help fuel the innovation. You know, part of it is that. But, you know, one, an interesting piece of the gating factor is that firms are so, um, uh, there's so much friction in the process that th- there are potential customers of alternative data that that just can't even look at an interesting data set because it's just too much effort. They have too much else going on. They just don't get around to it. And we've talked to a number of alternative data vendors who say the abandoned shopping cart issue is, is a is a big one in the space. People are, get all excited after a meeting and hearing about the data and it's great and great. And it's like, okay, let's move forward. And then, well, yeah, we'll get around to it. We'll get around to it. We'll get around to it. And they never get it. And finally, it's like, sorry, we're just not getting around to it. We're going to have to pass. You, you may have great data. We'll never know. We just can't. We just don't have the resource to look at it. And so anything you know that we can do at Crux is our goal is to just take that friction out of the process and take that effort off the client's hands and let them look at a wider variety of data and let them make use of it and also free up their budget. And right now they're spending quite a bit of the overhead on, uh, sorry, they're spending a, quite a bit of their data, total data budget on the overhead parts of what it costs to to actually wire up and, and consume this data. And because of the efficiencies of scale that Crux offers an extremely low cost uh, of the Crux service, um, that can free up a lot of their dollars that they can then spend on buying more data rather than buying less data and spending a lot of time and money integrating that data. So it's a really symbiotic relationship that we have with the data market. We help the data market grow. As the data market grows, it helps us grow. Philip, I'm going to uh, to use another metaphor. Just okay. <laughs> Prepare yourself. All right. I'm uh, stealing myself. I'm ready. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit like... Um, so uh, the building of the Erie Canal in um, in America was that there was all this produce uh, uh, on one side, kind of, or, or coming into into Chicago. I may be a little bit shaky on the details, um, and then uh, it needed to get to market. And the building of the so before that, sure, you could get stuff from Chicago to the coast, but it would be awkward. You'd have to, you'd, yeah. you know, you'd, you'd have to face the costs of road travel and all the other stuff. And then they dug the canal and suddenly it was America was unleashed in a way, or is a large yep. step towards America being unleashed. And in yeah. a way, the efficiencies enabled just by that simple pathway um, is is what allowed the growth that followed. So in a way, you could be something like that to the alternative data space. Absolutely. And it, it absolutely. And that's our that's our goal is just unplug the unplug the thing. Just, just like building a canal or building a transport of an efficient, low cost but high scale, high speed transport network, and there's more to it than simply just getting the data from the provider into the hands of the client really well, really fast, really cost effectively. There are other things that we're doing to help. So, for instance, um, we have uh, we, we haven't publicly announced it yet, but we have you know a couple dozen firms have signed up to use it with out of our soft launch, what we call the crux free trade zone. And that is, you know, part of the friction is the legal agreements that get negotiated every time somebody buys data. Now we've taken a look at a lot of these agreements and they're 95% the same as each other, but every but they're not a hundred percent. And so everyone's negotiating, every pair of customer and data suppliers negotiating what is largely the same agreement over and over and over and over again. 
So what we've done is we've taken a look at a zillion agreements and we created what we believe are best of breed industry standard agreements. And we've made those open. Anyone can use them. There's no, there's, there's no limitations on the use. You don't have to be a Crux customer. There's no economics in it for us. We're just trying to remove friction from the industry. And then, any, then we have a, a growing set of suppliers and consumers and platforms that have agreed to use those agreements with each other, which means, and that's, and everyone who, who enters into that agreement to use those agreements, um, those licensing docs is part of the free trade zone. So now those folks can all um, negotiate a data product and its price and know that all the T's and C's, all the pages of legalese, all, that's done. That they don't need to negotiate that. They don't need to redline. They don't need to have the lawyers look at it because they've already signed off on it. It is done. There's a master agreement between all suppliers and all consumers who are part of the free trade zone. So that's just removing another huge piece of calendar time and legal cost and friction and potential, you know, deal destroying, you know, fights. Uh, just takes it off the table. That kind of it brought me on to my next question, which is that one of the one of the problems with alternative data or, or with the fragmentation as you talk about are, is the lack of standardization. Yes, and the fact that you are um, you're creating yourselves as the utility um, for this kind of future growing world means that you are in the position to be able to to kind of not impose but encourage a standardization and and the kind of the crux way. Could very you're in a you're in a privileged position to be able to to encourage the market to be adopting the crux way of you know standardizing over time by kind of guiding the flows into into, into corralling them into certain um, certain directions. Do you can you see yourself doing that in coming years of trying to make make everything on a on a on a similar standard? I think so. We're not trying to create standards, really. I mean, we're doing it with the legal documents. But generally, we see ourselves, though, as being in an interesting place to apply standards. And, you know, our our view is that if we try to be too proscriptive, um, you'll turn people off. It will turn people off. It will be limiting for for our business. And we don't want to limit. We don't want to tell people, you know, this or that. Um, so, you know, people can use us to apply a standard. Maybe they want all the identifiers in their different data sets mapped to a common identifier that they're using internally. We're not saying what the identifier is, and we're certainly not coming up with our own identifier. There's lots of schemes out there. Um, but if they want it mapped a certain way, we'll do that for them. Or they want industry codes mapped, or they want currency codes mapped. You know, we can do that for them. Um, as part of our upcoming Crux Wrangle capabilities, which we announced uh, not too long ago. So we can provide standardization at the behest uh, of the client. Where we are doing standardization, because none exists, is in deciding what a data product is. Um, one of the things we found out is there's just shocking sort of vagueness in the market um, between vendors and customers about what exactly the data products are. And there's so many flavors. Well, this one has a CETL column. This flavor doesn't because the client, these clients don't have a CETL license, et cetera. This is one small example. There's lots of these things that, that go on. And so one of the things that our data curation team does is we are very clearly delineating every single product and every flavor of every product from every vendor. And we assign that a, a unique identifier that we call the, the crux um, delivery unit identifier. And it's just simply because nothing like that exists cross vendor today. So we have this catalog, um, which is open and, and uh, free to use called crux discover. It's, it's interactive because it's growing every day. Um, it's an application and in that, we catalog all these data sets from all these different vendors. We lay out you know, all the, their metadata in a very consistent way so everyone can know, okay, I'm talking about this data set. There's this description that has these data dictionaries and these schemas from this vendor, and it has this ID. And that allows the vendor and the customer to talk about, okay, what is the crux you know, delivery ID? Okay, we know, we know exactly what product we're talking about. Um, very clearly. And so that's one one little area uh, of standardization, but it, shockingly sort of un, 
unaddressed previously. Um, so we're doing it again. There's no economics in it for us. Uh, we make all our money from delivering data and uh, anything else we can do to just take friction off the whole process uh, is good. The more data that flows, the more data that vendors sell, the more data that customers get their hands on, that's just good for us. And so we're incentivized to just find friction and, and remove it wherever we can. Sure. So you have taken the plunge. You were, this was a problem that was gnawing at the back of your mind while you were in the market for, you know, Thomson Reuters and, and, and Bloomberg. Um, and now you've, you've kind of launched and, and Crux is, is, is well on its way to achieving its goals. Is there another annoying friction in the market that you're seeing at the moment, which somebody needs to take a look at is there something <laughs> is there something which somebody out there needs to needs to launch a crux equivalent to um to to, to solve because it's similarly just driving you crazy in doing what you're trying to do right now if i know of such a thing i'm not going to divulge you do it yourself <laughs> <laughs> you can't have it all philip you can't have the whole market oh why not <laughs> fair enough fair enough well um Philip, I think that's I think that's fantastic. I think this is a really uh, it's been a really good chat. I think Crux is a is a fascinating part of this emerging ecosystem. I'm 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 fascinated by the idea of creating a, a utility from scratch. You know, because they're because they're traditionally um, the big sleepy companies. So so growing one is a is a is a fascinating thought. Um, but no, I, and I think the more success Crux has, the the better it will be for the alternative data community, and it's a it's a kind of win win for everyone. So um so the very best of luck to you. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, I agree with that win-win sentiment, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on your podcast today and really appreciate everyone's time for, for listening in. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks so much.